The character of the heart is far more important to the Lord than the situation. Because the situation, He can move in an instant, in a moment, but changing you takes time. Psalms, or Tehillim, as it is called in Hebrews, worship or pray. And it's an interesting series of Psalms to study because it does give to us the opportunity to go right into a, the presence of the Lord with others and find out when they were afraid what they said to the Lord, or when they needed rest, what they asked for, or as they were waiting in hope, what their prayers were like, or when they were crying out in despair, what God did as a result. In all of the books of the wisdom books or the books of um, poetry, as they're called, from Job through Song of Solomon, none of those books are designed to give you further history, although there are some history in the Psalms. They're not designed to take you forward in the historical understanding of God's dealing with Israel. They're all designed to develop your present tense relationship with God you know, in, in, in the sense of prayer and fellowship and communion and worship. And so all of them, from Job to, like I said, Song of Solomon, ask really tough questions about, you know, present day life and seek to bring you to know him better. <clears throat> Nearly half of the Psalms, I think 73 in all, King David wrote. And we will look tonight, all five of these are from his songbook, from his copyright and second album, I believe it was. It went number one on the charts. These are five that we are not given any specific background information on, which obviously helps when you have those little, you know, precursors in the beginning that tell you uh, when they were written or not necessarily just to whom, but in what situations. And we'll get a lot more of those as we go. <clears throat> so we are left to look at David's life and then guess in what situation it might be in. It doesn't change the scriptures themselves. They certainly apply. Each of the Psalms that we're going to look at tonight, 11 through 15, <clears throat> is fairly short. I think the longest one is seven verses, uh, and there's three of those. Um, and they focus alternately on the wickedness and the folly of man apart from God and the faith of those who have come to know the Lord. So they're almost like little mini you know, devotions. And we've encouraged you, before you come on Sunday nights, to read ahead and to spend some time in the Scriptures. It'll be helpful to you. But also... You know, it'll, it'll allow the Lord time to just kind of get these into your heart because <clears throat> they're great places to sit and watch and listen as God works. And they, they're filled with wonderful promises. So Psalm 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15 is on the plate for this evening. Psalm 11. Now, like I said, sometimes these psalms have introductory um, <clears throat> lines. This one just says, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. That doesn't give you much to go on. In any event, they are important for us to learn. From the words of this psalm, and we'll read them in just a minute, it seems that David <clears throat> may very well have written this while he was working in Saul's court. And it's good for you to know Old Testament history if you're going to study the psalms, because so many of them are written by David from David's life. And it could very well be that this psalm <clears throat> was written after David had killed Goliath and he had come back to work for Saul back as kind of an underling in Saul's court, 
But because of what he had done, the, the people began to love David more than Saul, who didn't show much ambition or much leadership. And so David came home and, you know, the girls in the streets were singing his name rather than Saul's. And it didn't take long for David, the underling, to become David, the target. And, and Saul, you know, moved from suspicion to hatred. And as Saul continued to disobey God and, and David continued to obey God, it wasn't long before Saul's greatest desire in life was to kill David, young man who would be king. Even threw a javelin at him one time while David was up singing. See, these guys wouldn't be here so quick if they knew there was a javelin out there waiting for him, you know. But David showed up, you know, he wanted to lead worship for, for Saul, and it drove that evil spirit away from Saul, and um, it stuck into the wall, and he slipped out of Saul's presence, and David fled. He escaped into the night, you read there, and I think it's First Samuel 19. So um, I, I think that probably it was written during that time. David's life basically consisted of three big phases, if you will. There is the in-the-country phase, not the country music phase, just in the country phase, where David came to know and love the Lord. He watched sheep, he prayed for wisdom, he, he asked God's strength when he had to fight a lion, you know, or take on a bear. I mean, he just single-handedly saw the Lord do great things as he protected the sheep, developed the heart of a pastor, and uh, he became a good shepherd, which would make him then a good king. He has those in-the-court years, not when he was on trial, but David spent a good deal of time, faithfully sometimes, learning to trust God when he was placed in a position where he was uncomfortable there as a servant in the king's court. He was good at sheep. He wasn't too good at, you know, politics. But yet he learned about how the Lord worked and that he had a promise from God. And then he had those in the cave years, from the country to the court to the caves for seven and a half years of running from Saul, where he learned warfare and patience and how God can protect you, and, and was disappointed by people, a lot left and let down, and and yet he developed his dependence upon God. All of those before he became the king, the king years, you know. So this seems to be written at a time in the court where David had, you know, already been called to serve with Saul, but he was now getting more press, if you will, than Saul was, and it wasn't good for Saul. So. <clears throat> We read in verse 1, In the Lord I put my trust. And how can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow and make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. And if the foundations are destroyed, what can then the righteous do? You ever been tempted to just give up trusting God and run for the hills? You know, it's kind of like, I've been trusting the Lord long enough. Now I've just got to take matters into my own hands, you know. Nehemiah was at a point where he was leading the people and rebuilding the walls when the enemy who had been there all along began to say, you're a dead man. And they began to whisper it in the ears of the workers who then came to work and whispered in Nehemiah's ears. And pretty soon, you know, they were saying to Nehemiah, maybe you ought to lay low for a while. Maybe you ought to not show up for work. Maybe you ought to take a couple of weeks off, you know, go to the country. And Nehemiah said in chapter 6 to the people, Should such a man as I flee? Who is it that would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Let him threaten. I'm going to serve the Lord right here. But he was under that same kind of suggestion, you know. And David uh, apparently was facing not an imagined threat, but a real threat. And the people were saying, 
You ought to be like a bird. Fly to safety somewhere, you know, be reasonable about this. He was popular. The girls liked him. Goliath had been killed. (laughs) There were people out to destroy David. Saul had his henchmen. David was Saul's most faithful supporter. Never, you know, turned on him once. But, you know, the whispers in Saul's ears were that David wanted his job. And Saul was listening to the whispers, not listening to and watching David. So, you know, every decent thing in Saul's life would eventually disappear. It would just be kill David, kill David, kill David, kill David. And for the last many years of his life, that was his only interest. So David viewed the whole thing as almost the wheels coming off of society. When the king goes bad, where in the world can you turn? And he writes in verse 3, if the foundations literally are destroyed, while this guy, the wicked, is bending his bow and looking to shoot secretly at the godly or the upright in heart, if the foundations are uprooted, where then can we turn? And Saul would turn out to be extremely wicked. When David finally ran off after these, you know, he got wind of the fact Saul was out to kill him, period. He ran off to, without much actually planning, he took some guys with him, but he ran out of town. He had no food, he had no weapons. He went to the temple in the wilderness or the tabernacle where Ahimelech was the priest. And Ahimelech was surprised to see him without Saul. What are you doing out here on your own? And he just said, you know, I'm, I'm on duty or something. He kind of passed it off. But he asked for the consecrated bread and asked that he could eat because he was hungry. Asked for saw uh, for the sword of Goliath that had been hidden there, or as a trophy almost, and then took off. Saul came later with a bunch of henchmen and said to him, "Like you're in cahoots with David, trying to save his life, aren't you?" And Himmelich said, "No, I didn't know he was coming. I couldn't believe how, you know, he was off by himself. And he told me you'd sent him on some kind of errand, and and uh, I honored him as I would honor you, as we've always done." And Saul said to the soldiers, "Kill him." And the soldiers said, we can't kill him. He's a good man. He's a priest. He hadn't done anything wrong. But there was one guy there um, whose name was Doeg. Just call him Dog for short. And he killed not only Ahimelech, but the 85 priests who were working there at the tabernacle. And then he went into the town of Nob nearby where all of the priests lived and killed everyone. Slaughtered them at at the word of Saul. So one of the darkest moments in Israel's history And David writes, you know, I'm not going to (laughs) run. At least he didn't yet. But if the foundations are cut out from under the people, where can the righteous look? You know, you see much the same today, I think, if you've been a Christian for a while. You see the anarchy around the world, and you wonder where can believers turn. Well, I'll tell you what, no matter the situation, whether it's personal or national, God never leaves the throne. You know, he's going to rule, and he's sufficient to make it good, and he'll overrule every wicked earthly power. But it may take a while, and and you may be forced to just wait upon God by faith. So, in the Lord I put my trust. I'm not going to tell myself to just run off when I'm, you know, the target, if you will. But, oh, the, the upheaval when the leadership, when the king goes bad, how else can anything go right? And then David declares, the Lord is in his holy temple. And the Lord's throne is in heaven, and his eyes are beholding, and his eyelids are testing the sons of men, and the Lord will test the righteous. But the wicked one and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. And upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire, brimstone, a burning wind. That shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. 
He loves righteousness and his countenance will behold the upright. So in the midst of all of this, David had to learn that God sits upon the throne high above the fray, and God does something which we can't do. He weighs the hearts of men. He knows the wicked from the righteous, and in the end, the righteous will be exonerated and the wicked severely, obviously, punished. It does look sometimes in life like God has abdicated the throne, that the silence in heaven is so deafening that you wonder if the Lord's listening at all. And you cry, and he doesn't hear, and you pray, and there doesn't seem to be justice. But a lot of times, God will refine you before he destroys the wicked. He'll use their wickedness in your life to drive you to your knees. And it was certainly that way in David's life. David ran seven and a half years from Saul. And you might say, gosh, it seems like a long time. But seven and a half years later, David could trust God in everything. And he couldn't have done that at the beginning, but he could do that at the end. While Saul wasted the grace of God that God extended to him and he found a horrible end, David found glory in growing up in God's grace. But notice how he even says, not only is the Lord in heaven, his eyes are watching and his eyelids are testing. Great words, because the eyelids is kind of like the words for peering. Not only are his eyes watching, his eyelids, he's squinting to see, or he's paying particular attention to the lives of the people. God is extremely interested in what's going on. And he might have patience with the sinner, but he also has patience with the saints. And the reward in the end, the righteous will see his countenance, right? Verse 7 at the end, his countenance, his faith, the upright will behold. So hang in there in the meantime. God's wheels of justice, they turn slowly, but they'll turn. And in the end, they'll park right where they belong. And so David finds himself singing this song about taking refuge in the Lord when he wants to just run and hide, and that's the advice, because he's the target. Chapter 12, or Psalms 12, David could, I, I guess, have applied this to many times in his life. It's one of those Psalms which talks about feeling isolated as a believer, you know, where, where people are lying, there's a lot of wickedness around you, and and it's kind of one of those laments. That I'm sure it wasn't really an upbeat. It was the blues. This is the blues. You know, where, where David experienced, you know, the deception of people where he ended up feeling alone. I don't know if you remember the history of the, of the citizens of Keilah, a place David just risked his neck to deliver. And the minute Saul said, is David there? They went, yeah, he's over there under the bed. You know, they just immediately, you know, turned him out. The Ziphites, people that were from his own country, when, when Saul came threatening, they went, yeah, he's hiding behind a tree. These guys were not faithful to David, though David had given them their all. And even his son Absalom had turned on him. His, his buddy for years in ministry, Ahithophel, had decided he'd had enough, and he kind of under, you know, girded, or not undergirded, but underhandedly turned on him and, and joined Absalom. So, you know, here, here's the words of the wicked, and David returns them to the Lord, and then words of the Lord that David comforts himself with, and finally in the last two verses, what he wants to do and what he hopes to accomplish as he just feels so kind of out of sorts the whole thing. Verse 1, help, Lord, for the godly man ceases. I guess David felt like Elijah after he ran from Jezebel. You know, he finally got out there in the middle of nowhere, and he, he said to the Lord, when the Lord said, what are you doing out here? He said, well, I've been very zealous for you. Everyone else has forsaken your ways and torn down the altars and killed the prophets. I'm the only one left. 
You ever feel like that? I'm the only believer left. Maybe at your job. I worked at a job for a couple of years with 1,100 employees. I, I think I was the only Christian. I never could find another. And goodness knows I looked. Then you feel kind of swimming by yourself, you know. David and Elijah were both wrong. There were plenty of other believers around. But when, when things go wrong, you can certainly feel alone in it. And then you feel like you're the only one who cares. So help, Lord. Help, Lord. And, and by the way, there's no personal pronouns in here. David isn't saying it like my life or my need for help. It's just it's generic in the sense that it would apply to everyone. Help, Lord, the godly man is, is no more. He ceases. The faithful have disappeared from among the sons of men. They just speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart. That's how they're speaking. So he begins to describe all the frustration that he sees around him. You know, idle words, the, the word for idle in Greek and Hebrew means empty or vain, you know. It's the kind of good talk at the cocktail party which goes nowhere. Or those of you that used to hang around the bar, it's that kind of talk. I never did. I just heard about it. No, I didn't. I got saved at 18. You guys don't laugh. I'm telling you the truth. But I did hear it from an uncle. The word flattery we looked at, I think, this morning, you know, the selfish motive where you're very, the word, by the way, flattery in Hebrew means smooth. You're just smooth. You know, you compliment, but you don't mean it. In fact, Daniel, when he wrote chapter 11, said that the, one of the tools of the Antichrist was that he would corrupt people with flattery. He would be smooth in his speech. Um, Jude said, uh, the world's ways are that they have mouths that speak great swelling words to their own advantage. David looks around and says, oh, Lord, I'm the only one left that wants to walk with God all around me. Deception, flattery. Double hearts, or duplicitous hearts, if you will. They have an agenda that can't be trusted. David goes on and he says in verse 3, May the Lord cut off all of those flattering lips and those tongues that are speaking proud things who say, With our tongue will prevail and our lips are our own. Who's the Lord over us? So not only are these guys shooting their mouths off, but they're thinking they're getting away with it. I remember Moody years ago, I read one of the studies that he did, and he said, lies cover a multitude of sins temporarily. I thought, that's a good line, you know? So David is just frustrated. He wants God to just stop that around him, all of the deception, and he's, he's just had enough, you know? And so he cries out for the Lord's help. He says in verse 5, for the oppression of the poor and for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, saith the Lord, and set him in the safety for which he yearned. And the words of the Lord are pure words, as opposed to the flattering, double, you know, hearted words. Like silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. So you'll keep them, Lord, and you'll preserve them from this generation forever. I want you to notice something. David starts by saying, Lord, I don't find any godly people around. You need to help. And all I find is these rotten, double-tongued, you know, wicked-hearted. It's just, could you just get rid of them? And then he goes, I think, and checks out God's word again, because he comes to verse 5, and he realizes again that there's a word now. You see that word in the middle of verse 5? 
There's coming a time when God will step out in behalf of those who are oppressed by the words of the wicked and deliver them. And his word, unlike the words of men, is pure. And he uses the word seven times refined because that's that number, you know, of of perfection and completion and, and God's complete work. It's not soon enough for David, mind you, but he goes to remind himself that God won't let the poor down, won't won't turn his ear away from the needy when they cry out. For their purpose, if no one else, he'll, he'll always take care of those who can't take care of themselves and who understand that to be so. And David comforts himself with God's word. He will keep them. He will preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked are not going to influence those who need the Lord in such a way that they won't survive. God is going to work. David had a foe that was far greater than Goliath, by the way. The lies and the malicious whispers of his enemies were everywhere. Hey, God will work it. God will come through in his time. And until then, verse 8, the wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted amongst the sons of men. So David realizes it hasn't happened yet, but verse 5, 6, and 7 are those words of faith. God has said, God will do. I wish it were today. God help me. Everywhere I turn, flattering lips, but I know your word is true. And when the vile rule, wickedness reigns, when the vile are exalted among the sons of men, then wickedness prowls on every side. So nothing has changed except David's outlook. And sometimes I think maybe that's the best for us. You know, we, we see the world and we wish the Lord would come and he doesn't come. And so we just have to hang on to what he says he will do because he hadn't done it yet. But just because the Lord hadn't done it yet hardly puts him at a disadvantage. He'll, he's the Lord. He'll do that if we will relax and rest in that. So David's struggle. Continuing in chapter 13 from the last Psalm, David kind of has the same kind of discouragement feelings. But this time it has to do with a personal kind of depression because God didn't immediately come to his rescue. I, I have found over the years that when God answers my prayers immediately, I'm very rarely depressed. It, it is when God makes me wait that's hard. And the longer the wait, the worse it seems to be. Imagine being told as a kid whose dad wouldn't even call you in the house to introduce you to the prophet, that one day you were going to be king over all of Israel, and you spend years watching the sheep and some more working with a guy that was a little loony, and then he was just plain out ridiculous. And then he wanted to kill you. He made you wear those, you know, Target shirts. <laughs> I mean, with a Target on them, you know. And, and, and then you were running for seven and a half years. And yet God said. But it hadn't happened. And then when you finally get to be king, you get to be king out of like one twentieth of the land. And, and 95% of the people still don't like you very much. And you got to wait seven and a half more years. I mean, this can get downright ridiculous. And then you get depressed. <laughs> and when... The promises are unfulfilled and the trials come and go. And when you run out of ideas and God has still to work, David seemed to have plenty of reasons to get discouraged. And oftentimes he did. You know, man's extremities are God's opportunity. And oftentimes it seems in the Bible, before God addresses the situation, God addresses you. The character of the heart is far more important to the Lord than the situation. Because the situation... He can move in an instant, in a moment, but changing you takes time because we don't go so quick. <laughs> we don't move so fast. Circumstances are easy to change. 
But the heart takes time. It's an investment. It's planting deep. So he says in verse 1 to the Lord, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? Yeah, that sounds like someone who's not exactly feeling good about life. <clears throat> How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? How long are they going to be blessed? I want you to notice maybe the first thing, the, the obvious is four times David says, how long? And it seemed to him forever since God had moved in his behalf. And like I said, depression is, is usually tied to long-term waiting, not short-term waiting. It's kind of the relativity of time, you know? You go on vacation for two weeks, it's over in a moment, isn't it? They throw you in jail for two weeks. It's like a month and a half or longer. What time is it? It's like four hours. Four hours? I'm going stir-crazy. Relativity. So you wait upon God. God promises to answer. God doesn't seem to move, and you fall. So you, you get discouraged. You know, the delay tests your faith. Notice a couple of things. David felt God had abandoned him. Absolutely. How long are you going to forget me forever? He felt like God had abandoned him. There, there's one time in 1 Samuel 27 where Saul got pretty close to killing David, and he didn't even say it out loud. In fact, the verse starts by saying, then David said in his heart. So this was just a fleeting thought. It wasn't so fleeting, but it was a thought. One day for sure, I'm going to die at Saul's hand. I, I can't keep escaping, you know, by the skin of my teeth. And then he said, his conclusion, it would be far better for me to go to the land of the Philistines where Saul won't be able to get to me, and he won't be able to hunt for me anymore, and I'll escape out of his hand. And he thought the best thing he could do was abandon the place God had given Bad move. It turned out to be, you know, bad for David. But it was also that driving thought of God had forgotten him. Like every time he prayed, the phone was busy, you know? You know, when Job was accosted by evil news, he bore them well. But when he could see no end to them, he began to fall apart. It was all right for a while, but it was the length, not just the news, that caused him to wonder if God had an abandoned him. Furthermore, David felt God had forsaken him. How long will you hide your face from me? And how long do I have to take counsel for myself? His blessings were gone. Nothing seemed to go right. It just felt like a good time to quit, you know? But God is never in a hurry. Never in a hurry. I, I hate that, but I know that. Have you ever been to a car assembly plant? They're really cool, you know? They've got a million things moving and stuff flying around. You know, it's great. But then you look at the car. It goes really slow. Move that. No, you don't even. You have to go like, is it moving? Yeah, it's moving. It goes down this conveyor belt where it's assembled, but very slow. Everything else is really hurried. The car goes really slow. Because not only is it built for speed, it's built for quality. Hopefully. So it can't just rush by all the machines. It needs to stay there until things are screwed on tight and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're right in the right spot and they're put the way they're going to be. Your life's going to depend on it. God's like that. Everything around you is just flying. God's just moving like that car assembly line. Blow. Come on, Lord. You just want them to push, don't you? Come on, Lord, do something. Don't forsake everything in good time, young man. 
And, and David's emotions began to work overtime. He was in the dumps. He even says, daily, I'm sorrowful. Every day, I got to talk to myself. Every day, I look at the enemy. They're doing better than I am. His heart was daily overwhelmed. He was being overcome by his enemies. I don't know how many literal enemies you have. Maybe you have people that don't like you. How many enemies do you have? I mean, guys that are just out to get you, probably not too many. But you have one that's always out to get you, the devil. He's your constant enemy. He, he walks about like a roaring lion. He wants to devour, right? So we're going to have these battles too. We may not have them with the souls of this world, but we'll have them with the enemy of our, of our soul. And when David, you know, didn't see anything happening, he felt like God had given up. Now, let me go back to the same point again. God will take you through it to build you up before he changes the situation. You can almost call it spiritual thermodynamics. The greater the heat, the greater the expansion. You really want to grow in the Lord? Let him put some pressure on you. Because you're not liable to grow when everything just comes your way as easy as pie. David had to become a spiritual man who was going to lead the people. But if you sought to convince him God was doing a good thing, I'm pretty sure he'd have thrown you out on your ear. But that's indeed what was going on. And looking back, you can see it. So often that's the case, you know. You go through the worst of times, and then, and then God brings you through, and then you're, you're not the same person you, you used to be. You've grown. And there's no way to get rid of that growth, you know. The, you, ha- you bear the scars, and, and you, you look at the lines, and, and God's left his mark. Spiritual thermodynamics, the greater the heat, the greater the expansion. How long, Lord? So he begins to review a list of reasons why he feels out of it. Consider and hear, Lord, my God, enlighten my eyes, lest I would sleep the sleep of death, unless my enemy says I prevailed against them, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I move. You know, you can go all over all the things that you're bothered by, but eventually you have to turn the corner and just say, God, I trust you. If you don't, you'll be warring with this forever, won't you? So. Again, you get to verse 6 and verse 5, and David says, But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart will rejoice. Have trusted past and shall rejoice future. I shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So David receives encouragement from the Lord. He doesn't tell us how, but he goes back again to a couple of real tried and true practices. Number one, Remember what God has done in the past. Number two, rejoice in what God has done in your life. And number three, rest in that work of God that you know. You know, we used to teach people there are biblical absolutes that you always have to know because those you can always go and hang on to when you don't know anything else. Things like God is good. That's an absolute. God is never not good. You don't ever say God was sort of good today. Or he wasn't as good as last week. No, he's always good. That's an absolute. So when you run into something into your life and you don't understand it, one thing you can understand for sure is God is good. I have to look at this in the situation that God is good. God loves me. That's an absolute. He never stopped. He doesn't say, you know, I loved you better when you had that mustache or, or, or when you were a nicer guy or when you weighed less. He loves you the same. He loves you with all that he has. So. When I'm running into a situation I don't understand, I go back to the absolute. God is, God is for me, not against me. God will finish the work that he started. God is good. God loves me. 
absolutes. And David had to do that too. Were the enemies, you know, or, 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 the, or the, the trials gone? No. But at some point when you're facing things you don't understand, the absolutes will float your boat. I'll make it. What's God doing? I don't know. Why do you think he's letting this happen? I don't know. Well, what are you doing about it? Nothing. I'm learning absolutes. Well, do you think God's angry? No, he loves me. If he's dealing with me, you know, as long as I'm open and want to look, there, there's nothing I can ever receive from God's hand that won't be good for me. God is good. God is merciful. God is loving. God forgive. God is for me and not against me. God will never leave me or forsake me. Lots of absolutes you can live, and you have to live with them sometimes. David goes four verses. Where are you? Are you ever going to answer a prayer? Are you ever going to come through? Are these guys always going to be blessed? Hey, wait a minute. I've trusted in the Lord's mercy. My heart is rejoicing in salvation. I should be singing. He's been good to me. He goes back to the absolutes that keep his life. It's an invaluable, you know, you'll save yourself a lot of counseling hours if you can learn absolutes. What's going on? Could you help me? I don't know. Absolute. It'll keep your life together. And notice that David, after his prayer, puts it in the past tense. He has dealt bountifully with me, but yet it hasn't occurred this time, but he's sure that it will. Because though the delay tests his life, he's into the absolute. Psalm 14. The Bible is a big book filled with lots of good things, and very rarely do you find things specifically repeated. I've always told people, if God repeats himself, pay particular attention. Because he doesn't do that for nothing. He doesn't go, I wonder if I said that already. No, he, you know, Hebrew especially is emphasized by repetition. You find these truths almost identically, except for verse 5 and 6, in Psalm 53, in Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 3, always to talk about the condition of man's sin before God. <clears throat> it's a portrait of the godless man and the awesome God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And if you'll notice the words there is are in italics, that means they are not in the original. They're there to make sense of a sentence. The fool has said in his heart, no God. Just no God. But yet they are corrupt and they have done abominable works and there is none that doeth good, no, not one. You know, in most of the cases of a prosecutor in court, they work with what was said and what was done. But because God is God, he works with something even greater. He works with what is thought and what was intended. So the Lord is able to declare of man, the fool says in his heart, no God. God sees beyond the actions to the intents of the heart. Only God can do that. And here the judge speaks and portrays the one who says within his own heart, I don't think God exists. I don't think I need to do anything with God. And the Lord calls him a fool. Why not just somebody that's mistaken or ill-informed? Paul says, Romans chapter 1, that a man can come to know God by the evidence around him but refuses to acknowledge him. Or God has given enough information about himself and that which he has created around us to drive us to further investigation. You won't learn as you look around the world about God's love. In fact, it looks kind of, you know, animals killing each other, people killing, doesn't see a lot of love. But what you can see in all that is around us is that there is a God of order. 
There's a creator. There's a God who rules in the heavens. So Paul's point was, it isn't just a matter of being mistaken. If you knew for sure that there was no God, you would be wise to tell everyone you knew. In fact, it would take some courage because you'd run into a lot of public opinion that said otherwise. But that would be the right thing to do. If you weren't sure there was a God, then I guess you'd be an honest skeptic. But if you know and refuse, you're a fool. If the evidence is there and you don't act upon it, then that makes you the fool. So why does the Lord use fool? Because the evidence is there, and yet man refuses to admit it. Unless you think the fool is other people, <laughs> notice verse 1 and 2 says, or actually verse 1, that, that the fool is corrupt, he does abominable works, and there is none who doeth good. And as the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God, they've all turned aside. They've all together become corrupt. There's no one that does good. No, not one. Have all of the workers of iniquity no knowledge? <laughs> it ought to be very clear to us that the fool is kind of inclusive. No one does good. All, any, no one. Shows the extent. So the Lord looks down from heaven. By the way, in Hebrew, it reads really great. It, it literally says, the Lord bends forward to look. And, and that's not the first place that you'll find it. In Genesis 6, at the flood, before the flood came, the Lord bent forward to look. At the confusing of the languages at Babel, Genesis 11:5, the Lord leaned forward <laughs> because he was about to judge. He wanted to be sure that he saw and he understood it clearly. And it's one of those emphases where the Lord makes very sure before the judgment falls. Now the Lord looks forward again. Same phraseology. The Lord looks forward to see if there's anybody upon the planet who is seeking God, who has any understanding, and the Lord said there wasn't one. There wasn't one. Put that in your book of absolute. <laughs> no one naturally seeks God, nor does anybody do good upon their own. If anything as good is going to happen, God's going to have to intervene because he's infallible, and we apparently are just totally out in the in the dark, aren't we? And man persists in his folly, even persecuting God's servants. Read here, have all of the workers of iniquity no knowledge that they would eat up my people as bread? They don't call upon the Lord. And there they are in great fear. God is with the generation of the righteous. They are brazen in their opinion about God, yet they're fearful about the future. Very interesting. They eat up God's people, yet they're in great fear. That's the sinner's life, isn't it? The Bible says they run and no one's chasing them. Fear, not knowing, sinful man. Praise the Lord, God came looking for us. That's what we want to know. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says um, that, that creation and nature show God's uh, power which should elicit a further response. But then he says in Romans 1.18, when they knew God, they didn't recognize him as God. They, they didn't become thankful. And they headed towards reprobation, you know, where God gives them over to their own way. It's a good thing God came looking for us because we're all kind of in the same boat. I like this dichotomy in chapter 4 and 5, though. You know, they eat up God's people. They're, they're, they're treacherous. They don't pray, but they're in great fear. That's the world. God is with, though, the generation of the righteous. And you shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord will be his refuge. 
Well, you want to find where the Lord is today? He's among the righteous. You know, people suffer, but the Lord will deliver. <laughs> and you'll lose. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. And when the Lord brings back the captivities of his people, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. Here's literally the problem is, you know, the salvation is coming out of Israel. And the Lord will bring his captivity back. It's a real great prophetic reference to the Messiah that's coming who take our sin, deliver the people, and then can rejoice our heart. And finally, chapter 15 tonight, on the heels of chapter 14, comes this psalm about a righteous man who has come to know the Lord by faith, and he has the kind of life that God accepts. And so David writes about the kind of guy who hangs around with God. And it's one of David's kind of brighter days. You know, how can I enjoy fellowship with God and you know, the one who walks with God by faith and is being changed by him, he's the one who's in fellowship with God. And though we know that, you know, the person who's been saved is not made right by his works, but by his faith, the fruit of faith is certainly work. Right? When God moves in, then God moves through. And as God moves through, your life changes. You're, you're, you're made a different person. So when did David write this? <clears throat> Most scholars believe that David wrote this when he brought the ark back into Jerusalem into a tent that he had constructed for that very purpose, um, 2 Samuel 6. You might remember that David, when he was initially excited, just decided he'd go get the thing, you know, and throw it on an ox cart. It wasn't exactly a biblical approach. He was trying to do a work of God in a fleshly way. And unfortunately, a couple of the guys that went with him, you know, one of them grabbed a hold of the tabernacle that was bouncing around the ark was on the back of the cart. His name was Uzzah. And, it's, you know, the Lord killed him right on the spot. It's just like he grabbed too many wires. You know? And David went, all right, forget it. If God doesn't want me to bring him over there, forget it. He just sent the thing off and went back pouting. But then as he started to think about it, he realized, you know, I really didn't do this God's way. And so he came back to, to do it right. And the Lord blessed him about every 10 steps. They'd have an offering, you know. David went overboard in the other direction. Let's just be sure nobody dies today. You know? The glory of God and the holiness of God. And they got the thing in there. And finally, David went, oh, thank you. Who can stand before the Lord but they who have pure heart? And it could very well be that this uh, was written by David at that time as he uh, does it by the book, if you will, and then begins to write in his worship, you know, the questions of who can appear before the Lord. So it fits, certainly, this, uh, the setting but we can't be sure. <clears throat> Verse 1, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle and who may dwell in your holy place, or who will be admitted to God's house to live under his roof, to be a citizen of his kingdom? And I want you to know that the tabernacle is a tent. A holy hill is a more permanent place, so it seems to be a movement from temporary to permanent. And then he answers his own question in the song. He who walks uprightly he who works righteousness, he who speaks the truth in his heart, or he who walks, speaks, and works after the heart of God. Now, in the last psalm, there was a heart that said of the wicked, no God. Wicked, deceitful. But notice what happens when God takes over. Your heart becomes truthful. No phony language to betray a wicked heart. Pure inside and out. Open books. Verse 2, he walks uprightly, he lives an obedient life, he's submitted to the Lord, 
He speaks the truth of God's word. He's a doer of the word. He does in verse 3, backbite with his tongue. That's a characteristic of the world. He doesn't do evil to his neighbor or doesn't go after his neighbor. The word evil there is the word for unfaithfulness. He, he can be trusted in this treatment of his friend. He doesn't take up a reproach against his friend, a slander or a lie. In, he, in his eyes, a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own herd and doesn't change. He's dependable. He's honorable. His life is filled with integrity. He doesn't come and go. He's not up one day and down the other. He doesn't call evil good. His life has been changed. He's the fellow who can abide, live, and dwell there in God's presence. He who does not put out his money for interest. Usury, in this sense, is always forbidden when people cannot pay. To take advantage of the poor by charging huge interest rates is going to be something the Lord will eventually deal with, and that'll be good. <laughs> he doesn't take a bribe against the innocent. Money can't move him. He who does these things shall never be moved. He's fixed. So you get a psalm with, you know, a wicked guy who doesn't seek God, who could care less about God, doesn't know about God. And then you get a psalm with, who's going to spend time with God? Oh, here's the guy. And you can tell because his life has been touched. He's steadfast. He's immovable. You know, now all of these qualities, only Jesus can fulfill in us. You know, I'm given his righteousness and his spirit. And as he works, my life goes in that direction. Who can dwell with God? The saved can. Those who are born again can whose spirit God dwells in, who can cause him to work righteousness and speak the truth and, and, and walk in love and be dependable and be honorable. Hey, that's our life. That's how our life's supposed to be. And David sings about the man who abides with God will never be moved. Awesome. Next week, we will try to do 16 through 20. They're a little longer, so you'll read ahead. In fact, one of them, I think, is 50 verses long. But at least we have an introduction to when that was written. And uh, I'll trust that you'll read ahead and we'll ask you questions before the service next week. Father, tonight as we sit together, we pray that as we would continue on our journey through your word, that even in these individual songs, which just kind of pop up with different subjects and topics, that you would speak to us the one we're supposed to be hearing tonight and the one that needs to speak to our hearts, whether it's the same or all different but that we would learn it and, and hide it in our hearts and that we, as we read it and give sense to it, Lord, would just find ourselves more in love with you than ever before. Your word will just make sense. We'll be able to grab a hold of it and live with it and watch and learn as we watch David in many of these Psalms and others come before the Lord and crying and weeping with joy, fearful and happy, delivered and yet to be, but that your word would just instill itself in our hearts. May we know the absolutes, Lord. May we not be easily or quickly moved because we've learned that the heart of God can be depended upon. And may you help us to grab a hold as we go out into the real world and have to live our faith in real time. But may we experience, Lord, that goodness of God. And may the lesson even from tonight that you'll work on the heart before the situation. Remind us, God, that your greatest work is done within. And once our heart is changed, the situation very rarely matters because you have us close to you.
And may the lessons that you learn each week here as we go through the Psalms be ones that are hidden in your heart. So that the Lord might grow you up. Well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our podcast. You can visit us on the web at morningstarcc.org and on our YouTube channel at MorningstarCC. Again, that's at MorningstarCC. If you'd like to support this podcast, please look us up at patreon.com slash MorningstarCC. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash MorningstarCC.